0: Now, we begin knowing that there are mysteries that have no solution, but there are mysteries that we feel we've got to solve for the good of our own conscience. Take, for example, the mystery behind the Vukovar massacre. In eastern Croatia, a small town is called Vukovar. It's where our next story begins. And in this town, during the Yugoslav war in the early 1990s, some 200 people who had been hiding out in a hospital Disappear. Sensitive listeners should know this story does contain graphic imagery. Snap touch me.
1: Five years after those people disappeared, on a late summer morning, some 15 investigators drove out to the quiet Croatian countryside, to Vukovar. There, they walked through a wooded ravine to a fenced-off plot of land, about the size of a football field. The land was cleared of trees and bushes, and surrounded by U.N. soldiers.
2: It is just a piece of land, and somebody's telling you that underneath of this, there is a is 200-plus dead bodies.
1: The investigators took off their slacks and button-downs and changed into Navy single-use jumpsuits. They grabbed their picks and shovels and stepped onto a grassy mound. And for a whole day, they chipped away at the earth. There were whispers, doubts that this was the right spot, concerns they'd be digging for days, just making holes in the ground. But mostly, they worked in silence, digging for proof, evidence that something had happened here.
2: So we started to remove the soil of of of, of the ground, and then what we saw underneath was a completely different story.
1: This way, just roll him over. Just rolling
3: my hair, and of course the first thing that hits you is the smell of um, uh, decaying bodies. And uh, if I could explain it, I wouldn't to you because it's something you don't need to
2: know. It's it's a sweet, it's it's it's. Uh, it's very difficult to, to explain that. It's like a sweet, very unpleasant smell of decomposition that gets under your skin. It gets in your clothes. You can't wash it. When we, when we found the first body, I remember that, you know, it was a fully skeletonized body. There was a, you see a skull and the hands and the legs. When we exposed the grave, millions of flies came on us. F- flies everywhere. Remember, there was, there was
3: over 200 bodies in this grave. They have to clean them off. They have to look for bullet holes. They have to look for uh, knife marks. Whatever it was that would help them decide, A, how they were killed, and B, their identity.
1: The team looking for bodies in Vukovar came from all over the world. Kevin Curtis came from England, where he had been working as a cop.
3: I didn't have a good idea of what was going to happen exactly because Um, I'd never been in a war situation before.
1: Vlad Zuros from the Czech Republic, where he was a cop too. The first time he heard about Vukovar, he was recovering from appendicitis, stuck in bed, when all he could do was watch TV. And on the screen, he mostly saw news about Vukovar.
2: Then I saw on television the video footage of, of destruction and through the ruins, people were coming out and they were dragging their like a, trolleys of their belongings. And, uh, but but if, you un- if you don't understand what is happening there, you just need to know what is behind this.
1: When Vlad got the call to join an investigation of war crimes in Vukovar...
2: It was like a destiny. We had a purpose, I was, I wanted to be there because we wanted to find the truth about what happened to those people.
1: Together, Vlad and Kevin tracked down leads across Europe. They went to Sweden, Norway, Germany, and of course Croatia, door to door. They were writing down stories from refugees and gathering evidence that could lead them to some kind of justice. They wanted someone to answer for the Vukovar massacre.
2: The information, the evidence, started to appear before our eyes. This is
3: horrific. You know, you you just can't, you can't imagine being in that sort of position.
1: One morning, Kevin interviewed a woman who had fled the violence in Croatia to Germany. Kevin brought juice and water to her small studio apartment. And they sat on chairs next to her bed which was actually in the kitchen. They talked for six hours. When he returned the next evening to follow up, the woman had pushed the bed against the wall and squeezed a borrowed dining table into the narrow room. She set the table with seven sets of cups and dishes.
3: And she said, I hope you don't mind, but I've cooked some food for us, Um, but I also wanted to set it up for my husband and three sons that were killed. And... It wasn't as if, the, the, you know, the, the whole house was littered with photographs and things of her family. It was just this one occasion. They would want to see that I was doing this, she said.
1: With each witness testimony, Vlad and Kevin became more and more determined to find the people responsible for the Vukovar massacre and bring them before a court of law.
3: we got to have closure for these people. we got to have justice for these people. And... And it's our job to do it, because if we don't do it, nobody else will. But nobody wanted to arrest anybody.
1: For many reasons, it was very difficult for anyone to actually be arrested for these crimes. Vlad and Kevin were working for an international tribunal, the ICTY, the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So in an odd twist, the governments of neither Serbia nor Croatia nor Bosnia-Herzegovina were enthusiastic about a team of outsiders coming in and making arrests in any of these countries. Like, if two wrestlers in a match are both doping illegally, neither one of them wants a ref to come in and start drug testing.
2: If they arrested the opposite side, if Croats arrested Serbs, they could be accused why they arresting the Serbs and not the criminals on the Croatian side. So they didn't want to do anything about it.
1: But Kevin, Vlad, and their small team of investigators had physical evidence and stories, people they couldn't just walk away from.
2: Son is gone. Daughters are gone, raped. They were going to work, going to school, going for the weekend house. And all of a sudden, it all gone. Husband is gone. And then, then people are telling you those stories. It was bigger than us. You know, I honestly believe it was bigger than us. We just wouldn't give up.
1: They decided to focus their indictment efforts on a local politician. His name?
2: Slavko Dokmanović.
1: Slavko Dokmanović was the mayor of Vukovar when those 200 people were slaughtered.
2: He was radical. You know, he spread the hate. He would go and
3: he would kick people in the head and and shout goal, and not caring, and laughing, and
2: joking. So he gave was a part of the machinery.
1: And when the siege of Vukovar was over, Dakmanovich and others commanded soldiers to load men who had been hiding out at a hospital into buses, to beat them, and eventually to drive them on a dirt road to a wooded ravine. At the head of the ravine, the soldiers unloaded the men and shot and killed them. Afterwards, the bodies, some 260 of them, were buried there with a bulldozer. Slavko Dakmanović aided and abetted all this.
2: The local authorities were underneath under him. Who would put him to jail? Who would put him there?
1: Kevin and Vlad decided they would.
3: So, he was definitely one that we needed to indict,
1: The main problem was that Dokmanović lived across the Danube River in Serbia, where he was kind of protected. International teams weren't allowed to just walk onto foreign soil and make arrests. So they came up with a plan to go to Serbia and lure Dokmanović back across the river. They'd bring him into UN-controlled Croatia, where they could finally arrest him. But they had to keep their plan a secret from their colleagues.
2: Even within the office of the prosecutor. Nobody else knew about it.
1: They called it Operation Little Flower. The plan was Kevin would go undercover as a UN investigator, looking for crimes committed against the Serbs, against Dokmanovic's people, not committed by them. This way, he'd gain Dokmanovic's trust.
2: Kevin is a smooth talker. You know, he know how to get people on board. He's very friendly. I was better at
3: talking rubbish, if you like, um, and uh, if I if I needed to.
2: And uh, and he was the ideal person for going there, and 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 persuading Dokmanovic to come across.
1: Kevin's job was to go to Dokmanovic's house and convince Dokmanovic to come back with him. To a place Dokmanovic knew he ran the risk of getting arrested.
2: Everybody thought we were crazy. Everybody thought, everybody thought that it would not work.
1: Kevin and Vlad were really nervous. If Serbs found out about the plan, they could be arrested as soon as they crossed the border.
3: I mean, we risked being attacked, we risked being ambushed at his house. We know what. We believed he'd been involved in, which was the murder of 260 people. Um, so what's another
1: one or two? Vlad and Kevin decided to split up. Vlad flew undercover into Serbia. He would be Kevin's lookout.
2: And I drove there as a tourist uh, to Sombor, which is the place where Dokmorović was, uh, was living. And then um, I would pretend to be a tourist.
1: Meanwhile, Kevin drove across the Serbian border to Dakmanovic's house in a U.N. car, a white 4x4 Toyota.
3: We go across the Bogievo Bridge. We don't know what's going to happen.
1: Vlad sat down at a cafe, about 150 yards from Dakmanovic's house. He could see Kevin's white car when Kevin and his interpreter pulled up to Dakmanovic's front gate.
2: The interpreter goes, uh, rings the doorbell, Dokmanovic comes out. And he opened the gate. When he opened the gates, we went
3: inside and there's two huge rottweilers in cages right in front of me. And they were going crazy when we came in. And and actually, Doc Manovich smiled and uh, he said not to worry. Um, he's not, not too tall. Uh, graying hair, straight, um, with a thick, heavy mustache. Um, and also almost, I don't think he did stoop, but it he sort of gave you that impression that he was in a bit of a stoop. And we started to just chat generally about his time in Vukovar. Then his daughter came in with, with his granddaughter.
1: Then Kevin asked him about his own suffering. And the plight of the Serbs. He,
3: he sort of his face lit up. You know maybe that's not a bad idea. Maybe i I'd get you know I could do things for other Serbs as well. Um, and you could you could almost see his mind working.
1: Meanwhile, Vlad was still in the cafe drinking coffee and then a coke and then more coffee. His waitress was getting suspicious.
2: So she comes to me, and I, I, I spoke Croatian. So I said, you know, I'm waiting for a girl here. There was this refugee lady, beautiful Serbian lady. We fell in love. And then we agreed that we are going to meet here. And so I came to Serbia, and I'm waiting for her. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's a very touching story. And then she started looking at me like, you know, what a loser.
1: That's when Vlad finally saw the iron gates opening.
2: But, but when I saw Kevin leaving, then I was a spy and, 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 and look at the car, and I saw that he was on his own. So he, he, Dokmanović didn't go with him.
1: Dokmanović wouldn't go to Croatia right then, but he did agree to cross the border in two days, on a Friday afternoon. Kevin says he ultimately convinced Dokmanović to make the journey under the ruse that he could talk to a UN general about selling the property he'd left in Croatia. He would meet VIP escorts once he crossed the bridge over the Danube. And then, after the conversation with the general, Kevin would go with Dokmanović back home.
3: I said, what about if I come at 7 then? And he said, yes, and my wife will prepare dinner for us.
1: Over the next 48 hours, Kevin and Vlad prepared for the arrest, and on Friday morning, they got into position near the border. A SWAT team wearing crisp white button-downs and black suits drove out to the bridge and picked up Dokmanovich, pretending to be his escorts. Kevin hid in a military trailer, and Vlad stood behind the sandbags.
2: It was like, I don't know, 95 degrees of Fahrenheit, and then... It was like a flies flying around. It was this intense heat, and um, and the sweat was running around my back, and I was rehearsing the reading the rights
1: behind the sandbags. Vlad read the UN version of the Miranda rights over and over.
2: It might sound petty, but we wanted to make sure that if it's audio recorded, people actually can listen to it and understand what what was being said. We were nervous because there was a last opportunity. We knew that if it's not now, it probably wouldn't happen.
3: On the dot of three, we had a call from the Polish Special Forces that they picked him up and they were on, his, on their way with him.
2: It was absolutely exciting. You know, it, it was. We knew that we are, we are doing something. That is critically important for all of our colleagues and for the justice. And nobody believed that it could be done. And we were that close, we were that close actually to, to, to pull it together. But there was still the arrest and we still didn't know how it's going to end up.
1: When the car pulled up to the border, another SWAT team blocked off the road, forced the convoy to stop and pulled Dokmanovich out of the car. Dokmanovich was caught totally off guard.
2: And my time came. So I, I went down and they handcuffed him. We decided to put the, the black hood over his head. So he was terrified. You saw it in him, he was terrified, he was confused. It was on his, you, you felt it from him, terrified because everybody was sort of pointing the machine gun at him. And then this guy comes there and starts to speak in English to him. And he did not, did not, doesn't understand what that guy is saying until it's been translated to Serbian for him. And I start, you know, Mr. Dokmanović. My name is Vladimir Zuro. I'm an investigator from the Office of the Prosecutor of the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. I remember that today.
1: You are charged with the great
2: breaches of the Geneva Conventions, Crimes Against Humanity, violations of the laws or customs of war for your role in the beatings and killings which occurred at Ovchara farm near Vukovar on the 20th of November, 1991.
1: Do you understand? And then
2: we put him in a car, in the same car that he was arrested, and then go to the airport.
1: To fly him to The Hague.
2: And it all took about 10 minutes, but it was six months of hard work.
3: The Learjet is a very small thing. He was sitting down. I went over to him. I stood in front and I grabbed hold of the top of the hood and just pulled it off him. He looked at me astonished and clearly recognized me and said in English, for the first time I'd heard him speak English, um, my wife has dinner for you.
2: You
1: can hear Dokmanovic here saying he was invited and in guaranteed safety. invited me and he
2: guaranteed me safety. I I'm not
1: The Learjet idled on the tarmac.
2: We were all sweating and nervous, and then all of a sudden, the pilot says, "I got the clearance to take off." And then we took off, and there was a silence on the plane. Nobody talked. It was kind of a relief. The the pilot told us we left the airspace, and it was like, "Yes, there was nothing to stop us, you know, from bringing this guy to the, the Hague." We put together an operation that nobody believed could work. It was for the first time. We managed to pull it together against the odds and against the belief of everybody that we talked to that said it wouldn't work, you know, he wouldn't come. He did come, it did work. Nobody got killed during the operation. Nobody got injured. We got him before the judges.
1: Jacmanović's trial lasted about a year a year in which Vlad, Kevin, and their team testified before an international court, along with forensic pathologists, politicians, and anthropologists who had come from all over the world. Croatian survivors and family members of the massacre also told their stories.
3: We'd got the evidence together, we'd presented the evidence to the court, and then it was just a case of the court decision.
2: We we believe we were successful, everybody believed.
1: Dokmanović was indicted for inhumane acts, cruel treatment, and murder. Kevin, Vlad, and the rest of their team were confident he'd be found guilty by the court. All that was left to do? Wait for the verdict.
2: And it was for the first time we could take holidays. So everybody disappeared from The Hague. Everybody wanted to, to go somewhere. And I promised to my family I will take them to Italy for holidays. So we jumped in the car, we were driving from The Hague across the Alps, the telephone my mobile phone rings. So I, I tried to pick it and, and I drop it on the floor of the car. So I said, I better stop. So I pull over, found the phone, and I see it was Clint. So I call him back and ask, my first words were, So how many years? Because I expected that they announced the verdict. And he says, Documor is dead and I said, what, do you, "What are you saying?" He said, "You know, he committed suicide." And I said, "Are you serious?" He said, "Yes." You know, he killed himself. I was like, "Damn it!" You know, all the work that we put into it on one side, but also all the hopes of those people that they finally could see somebody responsible for killing of their loved ones, and and. He was dead. What, why, why I did it was because I wanted to see him in a in court of law where people can point finger at him and say, you mayor of Vukovar, your responsibility was to protect the people, but you chose to beat them and allow them to be killed.
1: Why is the punishment of suicide not enough?
3: You need conviction. For closure for the families, the families that survived. And there, there is, I've heard since, there's no shame on his family because he was never convicted, which sounds odd, I don't know, but.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess for me, it's whether or not he committed suicide or if he went to jail, the families are still in the same place. So.
3: No, they're not. They're not in the same place. I'm, I spoke to many witnesses who said you will never get the perpetrators for this. And, you know, they were talking about from the trigger pullers to to the highest levels. and And I said, we will. You know, we will get the perpetrators for this. And you've only got to think about if somebody did something horrible to a member of your family, what do you want? Do you want them dead or do you want them convicted of something?
0: From the years following Dokmanovich's suicide. Vlad and Kevin's team indicted 14 people from the region. About half of them went to prison for war crimes. Special thanks to Julian Bourgeois, who introduced us to this story. And thanks so much to Vladimir Zuro and Kevin Curtis for sharing their memories with the SNAP. There is so much more to this investigation than you heard here. And if you want to know more, Vlad is writing a book. It's called The Investigator. It will be released this coming November. The original score was created by Renzo Gorio for that story. It was produced by Adiza Egan, Liz Mack, and Shayna Sheely.